everyone. The reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 2. So 1 Peter, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Well, walking into a Western supermarket for the first time after living in Cameroon, West Africa for many years was a bit of an unnerving experience. In our local supermarket in Yande, Cameroon, where we lived up until 2004, uh, the only cereal you could get was rice bubbles or cornflakes. Anything else was too expensive because it had been imported from France. And the choice between the two mattered little because both were made by the same company and both tasted equally unsatisfying and unappetizing. So more often than not, our family would avoid both and would head down to the local Cameroonian bakery and buy croissants or baguettes. But back in the Western supermarket... The shelves of breakfast cereals just seem to go and stretch into a blurred horizon, and the infinity of choice paralyzed me. I felt a bit like Jeremy Renner in the Academy Award-winning movie, The Hurt Locker. But after a few visits to the supermarket, of course, you quickly go straight for what you like, and you filter out the rest. You can't do a multiple-choice exam every time you go shopping. Look, it doesn't really matter what you choose, as long as you like it as long as it suits your taste, fills your tummy, satisfies your hunger, makes you feel good, and promotes your health and your sense of well-being, and gets your day off to a good start. So none of them is right or wrong, good or bad, except for you. Choose whatever suits your preference or taste, take your pick, and move on to the next aisle. Now, of course, I'm not talking about your weekly grocery shopping habits. I'm talking about the cultural relativism that's become characteristic of the Western way of approaching more important matters such as morals and truth. 
Cultural relativism refers to not judging a culture according to your own standards of what's right and wrong, good or bad. And so we hear, I can do that because that's my culture. Cultural relativism dominates moral attitudes. If people can pick their occupations, their marriage partners, their homes, their brand of cereal, it seems only logical that they should also have their own choice in matters of morals as well. Whatever morals you choose for your behavior is a private matter. The only moral criterion is whether it makes you feel good, whether it makes you feel happy, whether it promotes in you a sense of psychological well-being. Ethics is grounded in feelings. Morals is grounded in emotions. Miley Cyrus, in her 2013 song, sings, It's our party. We can do what we want. It's our party. We can say what we want. It's our party. We can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. And the rest is too offensive to read. And so almost anything is tolerated except for one thing, and that is what the Bible says. And that leads to our second matter. Cultural relativism also dominates truth claims. The claim that you know a truth that everyone should believe, or you know a behavior that everyone should avoid. That claim is enough to earn for you much criticism, abuse, and persecution. If you proclaim a truth with confidence and make a case for it on the basis of the objective word of God and call upon people with urgency to change their minds and believe it, to change their behavior and obey it, you will be viewed by many as phobic, arrogant, bigoted, spiteful, hateful, offensive, and even dangerous. And as a result, Christians are increasingly finding themselves out of step with the society and the culture around them. This leads to another challenge that the church is facing today. It's what's become known as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the philosophy that says your purpose in life is to find your deepest self and then express it to the world. And have everyone acknowledge it and celebrate it with you. It's perhaps uh, best expressed by the slogans, you do you. Be true to yourself. Be your biggest fan. Be exceptional. Follow your heart. Find yourself. One school's marketing in New South Wales uh, gives this advice on their website to prospective students. Be inspired. Be challenged, be excellent, be you. The goal for every student in our day, we might say, is to leave school singing the song from the popular movie, The Greatest Showman. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send out a flood, going to drown them out. I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out. Because here I come, and I'm marching on the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. A veritable anthem for millennials and Generation Z. The lyrics speak unapologetically 
of marching to your own drumbeat and proudly announcing to the world who you are. Pop culture regularly taps into this preoccupation with self-knowledge, self-discovery, and self-expression. A popular song from the visually stunning movie Moana teaches young people that they need to look within themselves in order to find their true identity and purpose. Moana sings, And nothing on earth can silence the quiet, still, the voice still inside you. And when that voice starts to whisper, Moana, you've come so far. Moana, listen. Do you know who you are? Who am I? Well, the call isn't out there. It's inside me. It's like the tide, always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. I am Moana. Personal identity is about self-discovery, self-definition, and self-expression. And because of the influence of pop culture, we take for granted the obligation to find, define, and reinvent ourselves. And if we don't like ourselves, and if we are uncomfortable with who we are, if we're uncomfortable with our gender, we're encouraged to reinvent, remake, and remarket ourselves. One of the best-selling songs of all time is sung by Elsa, a character from the movie Frozen. It's something of an anthem for Generation Z. I checked it this morning, and on YouTube, it's been viewed almost three billion times. Elsa sings, It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. And so we become ourselves by asserting our own individual desires, by expressing our own individual feelings, by following our own individual dreams, regardless of what anyone else says. And so both of these issues and pressures draw me back to this passage in First Peter, written to a suffering, young, scattered church under extreme pressure from the majority culture. And when I'm aware of the pressures of cultural relativism, I'm drawn to this passage that focuses on Jesus in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Have a look at these verses. Jesus is only actually mentioned once explicitly in these verses. But he's actually everywhere because Peter is identifying Jesus with three different stones. Firstly, he identifies Jesus as the living stone, verses 4 and 5. <coughs> Firstly, Jesus is the living stone. Peter begins in verses 2 and 3, uh, the words that uh, Alexander uh, um, read from this morning, from Psalm 34. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. In verse 3, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, 8, where the psalmist writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, in verses 3 to 4 of our passage, Peter applies this title, Lord, 
which refers to Yahweh in Psalm 34, to none other than Jesus Christ, demonstrating a very exalted Christology. Peter writes, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord, that is Yahweh of Psalm 34, 8, is good, as you come to him, that is Christ, also Yahweh of Psalm 34, 8, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Peter then used the metaphor of a living stone to identify the one to whom believers come, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a living stone because he lives and reigns as Lord forever, never to die again. By virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And now he is alive, and not only alive, but he is life. And he gives life to all who come to him. Look at what Peter says next in verses 4 to 5. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So as we come to him, as we're united to him, the living stone, by faith, as we worship him, we also become like living stones. Not only is Christ the stone that is living, elect, and precious in the sight of God, but all who belong to Christ, all who are in union with Christ, participate in his election and his life and are the objects of his Father's affection as being ourselves living stones, chosen, loved, precious by God in Christ. You see, God has known us and loved us and chosen each one of us, all with our unique shape and identity. And then he has shaped us in Christ and placed us in his house, and he's making something beautiful. You see, whatever the near future holds, churches that have neglected the deepest need of the Christian community, namely to get to know Christ better and to love him more deeply and allow him to shape our identity as the people of God, will eventually cave in to a hostile culture and will follow the path of least resistance. You see, if we're going to stand strong in our increasingly hostile culture, then we must have a compelling sense of who we are in Jesus Christ. You see, the only way we're going to cope with the increased pressure from our surrounding culture is to have a robust sense of our corporate identity as believers in Jesus Christ, chosen and beloved by the Father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see, you don't have to discover or craft, create or achieve, invent or reinvent your own identity. Because your identity is not found in yourself. It's found outside of yourself. Your self-understanding, your identity becomes inseparable with who God says you are in Jesus Christ. Who are you? Your identity does not have to be defined 
by our culture's identity markers. Your core identity doesn't have to be your job or your achievements or your family background or your skin color or your gender or your sexual orientation. The glorious news of the gospel is this. When you come to Christ, the living stone, you are given a new identity that far outstrips all the others. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer concluded a poem with these words. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely words of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Who are you? You are Christ's. Well, then sticking with the the theme of a, a building or a house or a temple, Jesus is secondly spoken of as a cornerstone. Firstly, in verse 6, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then in verse 7, this time quoting Psalm 118, 22, he writes this, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, believers in the church to which Peter is writing were being beaten and berated by unbelieving masters, accused before authorities by unbelieving private citizens, harassed by unbelieving spouses, ridiculed, maligned, and ostracized by suspicious and skeptical neighbors and associates. You see, they were in the same place that we find ourselves here today in 21st century Australia. We are being shamed for our views on marriage and gender and family and sexuality. We are being shamed for supposedly being unloving and intolerant, bigoted and prejudiced, narrow-minded and irrational. We are being shamed for our gospel convictions, our Christian values, our biblical principles. And those who oppose us are being honored. They're being celebrated while we are being canceled. But have a look at what God says here. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. Shame us now, but on the last day, Christ will be lifted up and honored above all. He will be exalted. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. And here's the good news. To all who have believed in him, to all who share in his honor, the honor is for you who believe. But then there's a third stone. This one gets a little forgotten a little bit. So Jesus is a living stone. He is a cornerstone. But thirdly, he is also a stumbling stone. Verses 7 to 8. But for those who do not believe... 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see what's happened here? As the builders have gone down to the quarry and have chosen stones for their building project and they've looked at them and they've sized them up, decided which stones they're going to use for this building project, there's one stone that they've just thrown to the side. They've rejected as useless. They've chucked it on the reject pile. They don't want to use it. But then the strange, funny thing is that the builders have tripped over the very stone that they rejected. They stumbled over the very stone that they threw to the side. They threw it to the side and then they tripped over it. And they've fallen. And the fall was fatal. And Peter's point here is that there is no neutral position when it comes to Jesus Christ. You either follow him and build on him as the cornerstone, or you stumble over him and come to ruin. As Calvin said, there is no middle way between the two. We must either build on him or be dashed against him. But the question is, what effect does this rejection have on the purposes of God? The point is, it does not affect God's purposes at all. Verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, what's happened is that God, who is in charge of this building project, has chosen that stone that was rejected by the builders of the nation to be the very cornerstone, the first stone put in place, the unique point of reference, the stone that orients the entire building, sets the direction for all the other stones. And the point is this, human unbelief and rejection and opposition does not and cannot ever defeat or frustrate the sovereign purposes of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the cornerstone, humans can betray him, desert him, deny him, mock him, strike him, spit on him, hit him with rods, crown him with thorns, strip him of his clothes, crucify him, even bury him. But they cannot stop him from being the very thing that God destined him to be, the cornerstone of a living and great and glorious people. And so the point of mentioning the negative side of unbelief is to stress that human unbelief and rejection cannot ever frustrate the sovereign purposes and designs of God. I wonder if you noticed all that also in verse 8, where Peter says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word. How does that affect God's purposes? Not at all. As they were destined to do. You see, Peter's words at the end of this verse are intended to sever the last strand of self-reliance to which this stumbling, this rejection, this disbelief, as they were destined by God to do. In other words, if any proud unbeliever should stand up and boast and say, I have chosen my own destiny. 
my own identity, my own disobedience, my own stumbling, to show God that I have final and ultimate say in my life, I have the power of self-determination, and I can frustrate the purposes of God with my self-determining will. If anyone boasts in that way, Peter responds with these awesome words, No, you cannot. You only think you can. But you will discover sooner or later that whatever you choose, and mark this, your choice is real and crucial, whatever you choose, unto this you were destined. God and not humans will have the last say. So coming back to where we began, you see, when that supermarket mentality, that consumerism, that cultural relativism that we've been talking about puts pressure on us today, we need to come back to these verses which form the heart of our passage and focus on Jesus. We need to keep coming to him, focusing on him. Worshipping him, seeking our security in him, tasting his goodness, seeing his majesty, enjoying his fellowship, receiving from his fullness, and finding our identity in him. The pressure from outside must not cause us to lose our nerve or our focus. Rather, as a church, we need to creatively multiply the ways in which this can occur. This coming, this seeking, this receiving, this tasting, this seeing, this enjoying. So that the richness of what it means for us to be church can happen among us. But secondly, we also need to allow for some rejection of the gospel. Any approach that wants to sugarcoat the gospel, make it more acceptable, a sort of accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative strategy, so that the gospel is more marketable to consumers, more appealing to the masses, more, more adjusted to their tastes, less offensive to Western sensibilities. That sort of approach risks losing the very gospel itself. We have to have space, says Peter, for the cross to be an offense, for the gospel to be foolishness, to recognize that in Jesus' parable of the soils, three out of the four soils met with a poor response. Rejection is to be accepted. We must not crush the stumbling stone and grind it into powder and dust our cultural Christianity with it. We need to be courageous. We need to be faithful. We need to be focused. Focused on the Jesus revealed in the scriptures. A Jesus who's not just a nicer version than ourselves. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Peter reached for the same Psalm 118 text in a sermon in Acts 4 and verse 12. And he followed up that quotation with this statement. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We don't argue with this. We bear witness to it, come what may. 
And as we do, there will be times when a gracious intolerance will need to identify us. And then when I'm aware of that expressive individualism in my culture, I come back to this passage about our identity in Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10 and and how the mood just changes dramatically. Peter piles up images, five of them, to describe our new identity in Jesus Christ. Five identity markers. Let's look at each one briefly. Firstly, he says, you are a chosen race. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people. You see, what gives you your identity is not your color or your culture, but your chosenness. Christians are not a white race. They are a chosen race. Christians are not a black race. They are a chosen race. Christians are not a yellow race. They are a chosen race. You have a new ethnicity. You have been chosen, selected, elected, predestined, one at a time. Your identity is fundamentally this. You are chosen. You don't get your identity from the choices you make. You get your identity from your chosenness. You are the objects of God's gracious, sovereign, and eternal election in Christ. Number two, you are a pitied people. Verse 10b, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, when God chose us, and then he saw us in our sin, and our guilt, and our pollution, and our condemnation, and he pitied us. We are not just chosen, we are pitied. We're not just the objects of his choice, we are the objects of his mercy. God did not just choose you and then stand aloof. He chose you and then he drew near to you in his grace and his love and his mercy to help you and to save you. Your identity is fundamentally this. You are pitied. You get your identity not from your actions, but from being acted on with mercy and grace. Number three, you are a royal priesthood. Verse nine, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You have an exalted, active role in the presence of God. You are not chosen Pitied and possessed, just to fritter away your time doing nothing. You are now called to minister in the presence of God. All of life is a priestly service. You are never out of God's presence. You are never in the neutral zone. You are always in the court of the temple. And all your life is either priestly, spiritual service of worship, or it's out of character. Your identity is fundamentally this. You are royal priests in the service of the king. You have a vocation to be a holy people and a priestly kingdom in the midst of and for the sake of the nations. Number four, you are God's possession. Verse nine again. 
but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. You are chosen by God. You are pitied by God. And the effect of that pity, that mercy, is that God takes you to be his own, his very own treasured possession. God's very own possession, the apple of his eye. Your names are on the palm of his hand. Your photograph, your picture is on his refrigerator. Your photo is on his screensaver. Your number on his speed dial. God's very own possession, your identity is fundamentally this. You are Christ's. You are his treasured possession, and that forever. Fifthly, you are a holy nation. Verse 9 again, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So you have been chosen and pitied and possessed by God, and therefore you're not a part of this world anymore. A new ethnicity, a holy nation, a set-apart people, separate, distinct. You are an intriguing and compelling group that live lives in such a way, in such a good way, a holy way, an attractively distinct way, that you invite the interest and the intrigue of onlookers. Your identity is fundamentally this, holiness unto the Lord. You are holy, set apart, distinct, intriguing, attractive, compelling. And so all this expressive individualism rubbish begins to look stupid and meaningless and senseless. You see, because the purpose of all of this is for you and for me and for us as a church to get totally absorbed, not with self, but with God. So that's your identity. That's your new identity. What is your purpose in light of that new identity? Why is all of this true of you? What is your purpose? Well, in verse 9, all of this happens. Why? Second half of verse 9. That, or so that, purpose, for the purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, the text explicitly says that God chose us and pitied us and set us apart as his people for the purpose of telling people about his excellencies. God chose us and called us and consecrated us as priests so that we might declare his glory to others. Yes, we preach Christ crucified, but we do so glorying in the cross. We exult in God, and our exaltation in God overflows into proclamation to others, telling them how God has delivered us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, worship is absolutely essential to evangelism. 
You see, God has consecrated us and conferred upon us a priestly ministry. We have been chosen, called, consecrated to declare God's praises to the nations. And so if we're not faithfully proclaiming the gospel to those around us, then it's probably because we're not overflowing in praise to God. You see, if evangelism doesn't exist, it's probably because worship doesn't. You see, gospel silence is probably a reality, not because our mouths are broken, but because our hearts are broken. Because if we're not worshiping God with anything of the fervor and the affection that we should, then our neighbors and colleagues, co-workers and friends they would be the first to hear about it. In the end, the power to give compassionate witness about Jesus to unbelievers will grow in proportion to how passionate we are about him in our worship. Worship connects to outreach organically and naturally. When Christians gather to encounter the living Savior, when we are compelled to worship from hearts overflowing with praise and to clear his glory with passion, it honors God and it draws lost people to him. He says we worship the Lord during the flow of the ordinary day. And when we gather together as God's people to worship him on the Lord's day, the world can feel the spirit. Encounter the Savior, hear the words of God speak light into darkness. The world loves a party. Let's give them an invitation. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, kind God, compassionate God, thank you so much for choosing us, calling us, consecrating us, setting us apart, and leading us to know, love, enjoy, worship, and proclaim Jesus Christ. Thank you for the new identity that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to live out that identity, secure, courageous, bold, faithful, seeking not our own honor, but the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us courage in our challenging cultural situation. Please give us a really deep sense of our belonging to you and to your church. A deep sense of dignity and honor as honored believers in Jesus Christ. A deep sense of our calling to praise and proclaim your name. Well, we ask this for your glory and for the glory of your Son, our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.